Are you also tired of one-size-fits-all weight loss plans? Meet Noom, the personalized solution that meets you where you are. Noom is able to understand your unique needs, from dietary restrictions to medical concerns. Unlike restrictive programs, Noom embraces your lifestyle and choices. Discover a sustainable approach to weight loss, tailored just for you. Honestly, Noom felt like it was made for me. It's not just about what I eat. It's about understanding why. With Noom, I've learned so much about myself and built healthier habits that stick. It's all about progress, not perfection. Say goodbye to restrictive diets and experience the Noom app for yourself with personalized lessons and expert coaching. Noom's psychology and biology-based approach has helped over 5.2 million people achieve their goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The Lake Stickney John Doe has been a mystery since 1994 when his body was found underwater in Snohomish County. Authorities knew so little about him then that they couldn't even be sure he was Caucasian. And oddly enough, his race would change several times throughout the years as forensic artists tried to ID him. Recently, DNA gave him his name back. It's Rodney Johnson. But we still don't know how he ended up in that lake to begin with and who killed him. This is Washed Away. On June 11, 1994, a man's body was found in Lake Stickney, which is located in Washington State near Linwood in Everett. This man had been in the water long enough to make him completely unrecognizable, at least months, if not years. And because he had been in the water that long, his skin had turned into something called adipocere, also known as corpse wax. It's a product of decomposition that turns body fat into kind of a soap-like substance. Corpse wax forms through a process called saponification and tends to develop when body fat is exposed to bacteria in warm, damp environments, like, of course, in a lake. But it was clear that this man had died of gunshot wounds to the head and that he had likely been murdered and his body was disposed in this lake sometime after. At the time, it was assumed that he was in his 20s when he died. He was probably around 5'11 and weighed at least 150 pounds. He was most likely white or Caucasian, but could have been mixed race. Again, it was hard to tell. He wore Levi's jeans, size 10 and a half work boots, and black socks. Unfortunately, no fingerprints could be taken from his hands. The body couldn't be matched to any missing persons reports at the time, so authorities had a sketch created of what he possibly could have looked like in life and they gave him the nickname Lake Stickney John Doe. He'd later become the Seven of Hearts in a deck of cold case cards created by the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office and distributed to inmates in order to try and get new leads on unsolved homicides in the area. It's honestly kind of a brilliant idea, but despite that creative approach, the Lake Stickney John Doe remained unidentified until now. 
that was an interesting case and it went a long time and I'm glad that they finally got this solved. Although, of course, just the identification part is solved. That's Natalie Murray. She's a forensic artist out of the Texas area, but used to live here in Washington. And she's the person who creates the images you see of unidentified people in this state. You might remember she was who forensic anthropologist Dr. Kathy Taylor reached out to when she wanted to try something new with the Mary Anderson mystery. Natalie also worked on the Lake Stickney John Doe case, as well as another interesting case that was in the news not too long ago. Recently, we got a hit on Precious Doe, and I was really pleased with that hit, with everything except for the eyes, but the nose, the mouth, the jaw, the lower part of the face, the mid-face, all that I was really pleased with. The one thing that I didn't like was the eyes. The eyebrows also don't make me happy. The literature that we have says to draw the brows following the upper edge of the orbital cavity, so just draw them right along the edge of where the eyes go. But to me, I've noticed over the past several years, that's too high. My eyebrows are always too high. And so in the last couple of years, on my drawings, I've been drawing the brows inside the orbital cavities because it it just looks better to me. That precious Jane Doe case was a really strange one. Her killer was caught and sentenced long before anyone could figure out who he had killed. In fact, he didn't even know. But she was recently identified after 43 years as Elizabeth Ann Roberts from Roseburg, Oregon, though she actually went by the name Lisa. She left home and was reported as a runaway in 1977, and sadly, her family never saw her again. Just two weeks after she left Oregon, she hitched a ride with the wrong person, a man named David Roth. Her body was found just south of Everett, Washington soon after, and because of the way she died, it was really hard to get her identified. But Natalie gave her a face that's honestly really close to what she actually looked like. It's impressive. And I was so curious to learn how she creates these images. I mean, where does she start? I go down to the medical examiner's office and actually work with the skull itself. I examine the skull because what I'm looking for is what makes this skull different from every other skull. I want to see what I'm going to do on this face to make it stand out from every other face. Your face is different, and it makes sense that what your face sits on, the skull, the bone structure, is different from every other bone structure. Nature's not perfect. Your face isn't perfect. It's not the same on both sides. It's not symmetrical. So a lot of times, maybe one of your nostrils is a little higher than the other. Maybe one of your eyes attaches a little higher than the other. So I want to see what's happening on this face that I can show that maybe people don't necessarily see in life, but subconsciously they're going to recognize it as a trait that that person has. So that's what I'm looking at first on the skull when I go into the ME's office, and I'll photograph that so that I can remember that. She mentioned not only taking photos, but also using tissue depth markers that she makes with the rubber erasers of mechanical pencils. And that's to see where the soft tissue of the skin should actually lay on the skull. She then opens up the photos she took on her tablet at home, and she uses a program called Corel Painter to start drawing and painting a face. Natalie literally wrote the book on how to use that program and do what she does. It's called Digital Forensic Art Techniques, A Professional's Guide to Corel Painter. And if you're curious, you can find it online with a quick search. How do you decide on hair and eye color when you don't know? Like, is that something that you choose depending on you know how the face is kind of coming together or how do you go about that well artistic choice comes into things a lot in this because in the northwest we don't often get hair when we have skeletal remains when those are found out in the woods often animals will take the hair birds can take the hair and use it in the nest the animals will take the hair and use it in their burrows 
and there's no hair found still with the skeletal remains. So I have nothing to go by and eyes, obviously they're gone too. So we're taught as forensic artists to try and go with an eye color that's just kind of in the middle of somewhere. It's not too dark, not too light, unless you're going with someone of African-derived or, or Hispanic or Asian-derived or anyone that might have very dark eyes, where dark eyes would help show that this person is of that extraction. So in regards to hair, a lot of times I go with what looks right on the face to me. As I'm drawing the face, it starts to look individualized to me, and I go with something that looks right. So... A lot of times, actually most of the time, I'm not right, but to me it looks like it would fit with that person. And we're also taught here to go with what I guess would be called purposeful ambiguity, so it could be seen either way. While hair and eye color can be really tough to predict in these cases, it's amazing how much you can actually learn from the skull and the bones themselves. From whether someone had male or female anatomy, to their race or derivation, to even how much someone probably weighed. A lot of times if you have clothing found next to the remains that can give you a clue on whether someone is a large build or small build, average build, but in the Northwest, that's not going to happen. By the time you find skeletal remains, the clothing has rotted away. If it's a male, occasionally you'll find the indication on the bone that uh, muscle structure was very robust, and that will give you an idea that this is a very large person, that the muscles actually pull on the bone of the skull and make the bone show you indications that there were large muscles and you can see where they attached. So, you know, that the large muscle that was carrying a lot of weight. It's wild to think about that you can tell that much from bones. Isn't it crazy? Yeah, you wouldn't think that bone would be that malleable, but there are things that actually make an impression on the bone so that it pulls the bone out. I loved being able to pick Natalie's brain about her work as a forensic artist. I find that so fascinating, and it's such a unique and important job. I was shocked to find out that there are no full-time artists working here in Washington, and we might not have any forensic sketches if not for Natalie's connection to the state. Even though she's been doing this job for years and years, Natalie says she's still learning new things, and I guess the science and research around forensic art is constantly changing and evolving. So you never really know how close you are to capturing what someone might have looked like. I don't personally myself, I don't see the resemblance, but it doesn't matter because that's not the idea. The idea is for somebody else to see it, the right person seeing the drawing to get the ID. You know, it may not look like the right person to you or to me, but if someone else sees it and says, yeah, that could be my sister, that could be my friend, that could be someone that I'm missing that I haven't seen in a while, that's the whole point of the drawing. You know, I can't draw somebody that I've never seen. If you pick up a skull, you can't draw someone and know exactly what is on the surface of the skin. You're going to miss the molds. You're going to miss the scars. You're going to miss all the little things about that person specifically. But if you get the basics down, the proportions are going to look right. It's going to look correct that they'll call and say, you know, it might be that person. It might be that person that I'm missing. And that's the whole point of it is to get people to call in and give the detective something else to go on. When they've gotten to a place in their case where they have no other options, it's a tool for the detectives. It's something to give them another place to go on a case when they've reached a dead end. And that's what forensic art is for. As I mentioned earlier, Natalie did some drawings of the Lake Stickney John Doe. She didn't create the original in the 90s. That was done by a Detective Palmer. But she was brought in in 2016 and 2019 to try something new. She actually recreated this John Doe as several different races to try and help finally get him ID'd on the off chance that he wasn't white. She reimagined him as mixed race, black, and Asian, with slightly different ages and hairstyles, really covering all the bases. 
And I also kept the, uh, the tooth detail because he had really unusual, I thought his teeth were very unusual. Sometimes people will have what's known as a diastema, a space between the top two front teeth. He's got diastemas between all of his bottom teeth. So I showed that in the drawings because I thought people would recognize that. Your teeth are the only part of your skull that people see when you're alive. And so people will recognize that. So if you have those, it's good to show those in a drawing. One thing it looks like she kept mostly the same was his eyes. They all look similar to me. And now that we know what he really looked like, I hope Natalie's happier with her work on the Lake Stickney John Doe's eyes than she was with Precious Jane Doe's eyes, because I think she really nailed that feature. So just a couple of weeks ago, news broke that genetic genealogy had solved another identification mystery. The Lake Stickney John Doe was actually Rodney Peter Johnson. He was 25 years old. He worked at a Chinese restaurant in Ballard, which is actually the neighborhood I live in. He was white, but could have been mistaken for mixed race as he was part Lummi. If you're not familiar with the Lummi Nation, they are a Native American tribe and the original inhabitants of Washington's northernmost coast and some of southern British Columbia. All of that to say that the original theories about what this guy looked like were actually pretty spot on. The last time anyone saw Rodney alive was either in 1987 or 1988. But remember, his body wasn't found until 1994. That's how long he might have been in that lake. He did have family, and they did report him missing, twice even, in 1994 and 1996. But it's possible that since he lived in Seattle and his body was found near Everett, that a connection just wasn't made between the two. Or maybe something got lost in the almost decade of time between when he was last seen and when he was reported missing. Either way, now at least his family finally knows what happened to him. What they don't know, however, is who killed him and why. Cold case detectives are trying to figure that out, and they're hoping that after all this time that someone might finally be ready to come forward. They're especially curious about a girlfriend that Rodney had in the 80s, and some camping trips that they went on in the area. Here's some other details about Rodney, just in case they jog someone's memory. Rodney went to high school in Darrington, Washington. He was a foster child with several brothers and a half-sister. He broke his left collarbone at some point. He had been arrested for burglary and assault. And at the time of his disappearance, he lived on Northwest 60th Street in Seattle. According to the Everett Herald, tips should be called into the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office at 425-388-3845. Washed Away is a Cosmic Bigfoot production. Huge thanks to Natalie Murray for talking to me about her work. You can see her composites and reconstructions at nataliemurray.com. That's spelled M-U-R-R-Y. And of course, I'll link to her site in my show notes. You can find those as well as images, transcripts, sources, and more at washedawaypodcast.com. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at washedawaypod. And if you'd like to help this podcast reach new ears, please leave a rating or review on Apple. I'm Ashley Smith, and I'll have another episode for you very soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>